This message was presented at the GYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Just to quickly review, in our previous session, we were talking about the casting out of Satan and the, uh, orig uh, the origin of the great controversy and uh, within his heart and all of that. Basically, what we said to boil it down in a very, very quick thumbnail, Lucifer had this war raging in his heart that other people couldn't see, but God could see it, of course, because God can see the heart. He physically removes him from the courts of heaven instead of, instead of destroying him from existence, not because God didn't know what was right or wrong or he needed to see, but other people needed to see. Those other sentient beings, according to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, those who knew you might gaze at you and consider you. It was not until Calvary when what Jesus and God the Father, what the, the Godhead had seen from the very beginning in the heart of Lucifer manifested itself fully on the outside at Calvary, right? And so what you see in Calvary, when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, there was a full manifestation of the character of God who would give everything, even his own life, for the sake of others whom he loved. Contrasted sharply against the character of Satan, who would take everything, even the life of God, were it possible, to suit his own desires. Right? And so the heavenly being, those onlooking sons of God, all those intelligences up there, watched Calvary and saw the righteousness of God revealed, and they saw the character of Satan unmasked and revealed as well. And thus he was cast out a second time. In fact, you can look it up. Uh, Mrs. White makes statements that say, that even parallel and say, for the second time he was cast out of heaven. Direct application of two castings out, one from the courts of heaven physically, and the other from the sympathies of the heavenly beings who were watching it go on. Okay? Steps one and two. Steps one and two. Now, uh, I want to share with you this statement. You won't find it in your notes, but if you want to write it down, it's a good one. A friend of mine reminded me of the statement. We need to put it out here. Signs of the Times, December 30, 1889. ST, December 30, 1889. There's also a couple other places. You have the, if you have the book Truth About Angels, you'll find a truncated version of this on page 205. Or if you have the Bible Commentary series, it's in the Fifth Bible Commentary, page 1132. Okay? But Mrs. White writes, The death of Christ upon the cross made sure the destruction of him who has the power of death, who is the originator of sin. So it didn't destroy him, but it guaranteed that he would be destroyed. Do you see the difference? Okay? And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. Why is that the case? But when Satan is destroyed, looking down to the farthest end of it, there will be none to tempt evil, to tempt to evil. The atonement will never need to be repeated, and there will, no be, there will be no danger of another rebellion in the universe of God. That which can, alone can effectually restrain from sin in this world of darkness will prevent sin in heaven. We'll come back to these ideas later, but I want to lay the groundwork for it. The significance of the death of Christ will be seen by saints and angels. Fallen men could not have a home in paradise of God, in the paradise of God, without the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Then she asked rhetorically, shall we not then exalt the cross of Christ? Right, so exalting the cross of Christ is in the context of the great controversy, according to this. What's its significance, not just to us, but to the rest of the universe? To make this explicitly clear, she continues. The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ now notice this language. For even they are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. Have you ever thought about that? Why don't other angels fall? Is it because God has taken away their freedom of choice? They can't? No, they just won't. Why? Because they've seen the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Okay? Okay. The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ, for even they are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. Did you ever think about the death of Jesus on the cross was for them too, even though they had not sinned? 
Okay? The death of Christ, the cross event, the Calvary, is not just about us. Now, it's plenty about us. But we're not the big issue necessarily in the universe. We're just a part of God's universe, right? We need to see the broader context. Anyway, again, that was Signs of the Times, December 30, 1889. So just wanted to segue on the back of that before we launch into stages three and four. So step one, Christ uh, physically cast Satan out of heaven, out of the courts of heaven. Step two, was cast him out of the sympathies of heavenly beings by demonstrating, by revealing the character of Christ. Now, he could have said, God had, by the way, proclaimed his character before, hadn't he? To Moses, he's like, long-suffering and patient and have mercy for all these different things. But they needed to see it, not just hear him say it. Right? Because Satan's a liar and the father of it. So Christ reveals it on the cross, and in the same act you see the character of Christ revealed, you see the character of Satan revealed. And from that point on, the angels of God, those unfallen beings, the sons of God, the, the populate heaven, basically could say, all right, we're with you. We see it for ourselves with our consent. Not that you needed it, and certainly not by our power, but with our consent, we're with you. You can kill Satan. We get it. We understand. This makes sense now. Which launches us into our next section. If they understood the character of the enemy at that point. Why didn't God kill Satan the instant Jesus died as well? Why didn't they both die at the same moment? Or shortly thereafter? Like, all right, did everybody see? Are we good? Okay, now. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can come together and study these great themes. Lord, I ask that you bless our time together, sharpen our minds, to understand your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit to make application in our lives so that we can find our place in this great controversy scheme for we pray, pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Step three. Now, if you go back to that original statement by, uh, well, let's pause. We'll just go there for a second. Again, I hope that you have notes. They're available. Okay, we're going to be following this script pretty closely. Okay. If God's only objectives in the great controversy were the revealing of Satan's true character and his resultant destruction, if his only aim was to show people what was really inside of Satan and then kill him as a result of them seeing it, Satan could have been executed immediately after Calvary. However, praise God, it's not called the plan of destruction. It's called the plan of what? Salvation, the plan of redemption. Something has to be redeemed. Something has to be saved for it to be complete. If it was the plan of destruction, it could have been over 2,000 years ago. But no, 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 no. He doesn't want to just uproot the tares. He also wants to save the wheat, right? So that goes back to, Revelation, uh, to Matthew chapter 13. Again, he allows the tares to continue to increase because he cares about the righteous, right? So God's ultimate goal, let's take a look at this. Colossians chapter 1, what's the end game that he's aiming for? If it's not the destruction of Satan, what is his objective? And can we demonstrate this from Scripture? Colossians chapter 1, what's the goal of the great controversy? If it's not just the destruction of Satan. Colossians chapter 1. Let's go to verse 19. Speaking of Jesus Christ. For it pleased the Father that in him, again that's Jesus Christ, all the fullness should dwell. And of course he revealed the character of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've what? Seen the Father. He's a spitting image if you want to say. He's exactly. Now in contrast to those who claim to be God's children, right? But they're actually manifesting the character of Satan. This one claimed to be the Son of God and actually proved it. Right? For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to do what? What's that word? I'm sorry, is it in your Bible? <laughs> Verse 20. And by him to what? Reconcile. What does that mean to reconcile? To bring together, right? To reconnect, to reconcile all things to himself by him. And it's through the agency of Jesus Christ that this reconciliation happens. 
But God's plan in sending Jesus was the eventual reconciliation of all things. And notice what these are. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. He wants to reconnect all of heaven, all of earth, the entire universe to one harmonious whole. It wasn't just for the sake of heavenly beings, even though that was the first step, right? Just like the gospel was for all people, but it was for the Jew first and then for the Gentile, right? It started in heaven. They needed to see, but it also has deals with us, okay? All things to him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So the blood of the cross is that agency that would bind and reconcile the universe, both heaven and earth, together to the Lord. Now, Ephesians chapter 3. Just go back a couple pages in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 3. You see the same concept. We're going to start with verse 8. This is, a, this is one of those Pauline passages that's uh, multiple sentences all uh, in one sentence. Uh, these are, I'm guessing these are the types of passages that might frustrate Peter <laughs> when Peter says he writes things that are sometimes hard to understand and how wicked people twist them to their own meaning, this kind of thing. But let's just follow step by step. We're going to diagram the sentence a little bit. Go back to, I don't know, whatever grade you do that in. Verse 8, Paul gives his job description. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. So he's going to tell us what the commission from God is that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, if we were writing this, we'd probably put a sentence, a period there, and say that's the end of the sentence. Paul's job description was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. But he goes on to say, and, verse 9, to make all what? See. He's going to reveal something. He's going to show it. Let everyone see something. What is the thing we're going to see? To make all see... What is the fellowship of the mystery, which was from the beginning of the ages? This is, again, the instigation, not the beginning of our creation, but this goes back from the beginning of the great controversy itself, from the whole plan of redemption, right? To make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Again, this is one of those beautiful little texts that shows that God created all things through Jesus Christ. Okay, now, verse 10. What's his purpose? What's his aim? What's his ultimate end? To the intent, verse 10, that now the manifold wisdom of God. Now, manifold is something that's complex, right? That it's got a lot of parts and pieces to it, right? But the manifold wisdom, apparently this is not simple stuff. These are the deep things of God. But God's big ultimate plan, what's in his mind? The manifold wisdom of God might be made known. So the wisdom of God, the purpose of God, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, and now what does it say? By the what? Church. To whom? To the principalities and powers where? In the heavenly places. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Okay, so now that's a very loaded question, but let's go back to verse 10 especially. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, and let's skip over the by, and who's it going to be made known to? To the principalities and powers where? Now, let, let me pause and just think about the logistics of this. Where does God live? Heaven. And he's going to teach something about his own wisdom to people who live where? Heaven. Wouldn't the easiest way to teach someone in heaven about yourself, who you live in heaven, is just turn to them and explain it to them? Right? Like, look, here's my plan, and I know it's going to take a while, but we've got all the time in the world. Right? Here's this, and you he, and he would go through and explain and explain and explain and explain. But this goes back to our earlier premise. All the talking in the world wouldn't accomplish the teaching that needs to be done. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by what agency? By the church. Amen. To whom? To the rulers and authorities in the powers, principalities, in the heavenly realms. So think about this. God's in heaven. So are these heavenly beings in heaven. 
And he wants to teach them something about his own wisdom, his own plan, his objectives. And he's going to use the agency, his tool of instruction will be the church. By the church, I'm going to teach you something about my plan. Now, the cross had already been a teaching tool about his plan, hadn't it? What did the cross answer? The question the angels were asking is, why should Lucifer die? Is it so wrong to ask a question, to have another idea? Is that, so, is that a capital offense, you know? Is that... And, and of course, you could always, you know, and people could say, well, he's had 4,000 years of death and destruction and disease. Couldn't you say, well, he should die for that stuff, right? But the wages of sin is what? Death. And according to Scripture, how many have sinned? All have sinned. So couldn't Lucifer just say, well, look, they're all sinning, and it's God's law that says they have to die. I'm just showing you who God is. But Jesus comes along, and he's different. What made him different? He was tempted at all points like to as we are, but what, what was the big difference? It was out of sin. He had no leg to stand on. Shed, and Ellen White talks about shedding the innocent blood of the Son of God. He uprooted himself from the sympathies of heavenly beings. So the cross was already a teaching tool for the heavenly beings, but now there's a, in the time of Paul, after the cross, he says now, Paul sees it as part of his ministry to the intent that now, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. Apparently, part of God's wisdom needs to be revealed by the church to the heavenly beings. The cross answered the question, why should Lucifer die? And they're all good with that now. They're not asking that question anymore. Now they're asking the question, why should any of Satan's followers be allowed to live? Think about it. Now that we're good with him dying, why should he... By the way, we ended with that last link of sympathy statement from Desire of Ages 761. If you were to continue reading the very next words, still on page 761, Desire of Ages, you get it right here in your notes. Again, we'll kind of overlap it like a Venn diagram to give us picking up the previous and now learning, trudging into new stuff. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. We're talking about the cross, yes? Okay, I'll take your silence to be yes. Okay, good. <laughs> Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. Now, the very next paragraph continues. Yet, Satan was not then destroyed. And why was it? Because the angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. Apparently, there's more than simply destroying Satan that God has in mind. It's this reconciliation. It's actually saving humanity, not just destroying Satan. The angels did not even then understand all that was involved with the great controversy. The principles at stake were to be more fully, what? Revealed. So now we're going to shift from the cross being the instrument of revelation to, according to the Apostle Paul, what's the instrument? What's the thing he's going to use to teach these? The church. And, for this, and notice this. Going back to Matthew 13, it sounds like the isolated it sounds like the craziest statement you've ever heard. But listen to it. And for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. Think about the gravity of that. It's in the best interest of the wheat that the tares be allowed more time. Mm. And we should all just take a quiet moment. <laughs> Think about the gravity of that. It's in the best interest of the wheat that the weeds keep growing for a time. Men as well as angels must see the contrast between the Prince of Light and the Prince of Darkness. 
he must choose whom he will serve. By the way, if we go back to Matthew chapter 13, at least in our minds, we were familiar with that parable of the wheat and the tares. When the reapers asked the question of the owner of the field, should we go pluck them up? He says, no, lest while you pluck them up, you'll uproot the wheat with them. Right? Why would they uproot the wheat with them? If they're going to be the same people who are going to do it later at the harvest, why not do it now? Thank you. At those initial stages, it's a little bit hard to see the difference. But at the time of harvest, there will be a clear distinction. There will be two classes. The group that's going to go to the barn, the other that's going to go to the burn. Right? And notice there's the same people, the servants, the reapers, the angels who are going to go and make the distance. He's like, I'll, I'll, you, you'll see for yourself. But at this early stage, if you just start you from your own perspective plucking up what you think is right and wrong, you won't see the end from the beginning. You don't understand the manifold wisdom of God yet. So now the question is not why should Satan die? The question they have is why should any of his followers live? 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9. Notice, and this is the theme text for GYC, by the way. This is where they came up with this. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9, Paul explains his perspective. He, he's, you ever feel like somebody's just watching you? You know, that kind of... Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Paul wrote from that perspective of someone being watched. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. And his concept of having the world see, he meant the entire universe, both men and angels. Right? He had this cosmic, this universal perspective in mind when he talked about being watched. And again, we saw that in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 already. Now, it says here in your notes, and I'm going to read it, just make sure I don't say it wrong. Holy intelligences needed to see in the lives of those who claim Christ as their Savior that his sacrifice does more than merely call them good on paper, but can actually make them good in person. While they are no longer looking for evidence that Satan should die, they are looking for evidence that we should live. Okay, they're watching. Now, which brings us to this interesting passage. Now, I already told you that Revelation chapter 12 outlines, and we'll get to it, all four stages of Satan's fall from heaven, from the initial casting out to the sympathies into stages three and four that we're studying now. I believe there's one other passage that intimates it, and Mrs. White makes it explicitly clear. Let's go to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Here, the 70 were sent out. In chapter 9, the 12 were sent out to do ministry. By the way, Jesus didn't just have them watch ministry. He trained them to do ministry. By the way, that's what all of our churches should be doing. Should be training centers. Well, that's a whole other seminar. We'll just stop right there. <laughs> but here in chapter 10, now he sends out the 70 to continue his ministry. And they come back overjoyed. Mm. Verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord... Even the demons are subject to us in your name. <laughs> and I wonder if his heart sank a little bit because they probably came across as surprised. <laughs> like, you'll never believe it. <laughs> Did you know that you are stronger than the... He's like, yes. <laughs> I absolutely knew that. That's why I sent you. Right? Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. It's as though your name itself... It's as though when we... It's powerful. And then he says to them, verse 18, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, what does that mean? 
What does it mean to fall like lightning from heaven? Now, I, obviously, I, I think of, first of all, I think Jesus, of course, is here as a human being, but he pre-existed, yes. I mean, he's seen the end from the beginning. But does Jesus tap into that when he's here? He says, I, I, all, only the, what the Father shows me, only what he tells me, only what he bids me do, I do. I'm here completely in his control. So when he says, I saw it, it also means I was shown it. Right? Okay? I saw Satan fall like lightning. And again, my, my next thing I would think is that lightning is a metaphor for quickness, for speed, for rapidity. Which I guess the sound is thunder, but you, this, you know, understand. But is that what he means? Did Satan fall like lightning in the sense of quickness? No. Of course not. He was still going to say the ruler of this world will be cast out, right? Future tense. So what else could lightning mean if not for quickness and speed? Well, I think it goes back to what we saw in Isaiah and Ezekiel. It goes back to visibility, being seen. As, did Jesus describe anyone else coming from heaven like lightning? Oh, mercy, folks, yes. Who? Himself. <laughs> Thank you. People are like, I don't know. Who is it? Jesus. <laughs> right? He's coming, and he uses the metaphor of lightning. In fact, uh, uh, let's see here. Yeah, we could go to the several passages, but you're familiar with it. But he says, as the lightning shines even from the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be, right? And what does he mean by lightning in that sense? We use it all the time in every evangelistic crusade that it's not a secret rapture. It will be seen by all. But he says, that's how the fall of Lucifer was like. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's visible to be seen. Mrs. White picks up on this nuance. Desire of Ages, page 490. And notice that she outlines all four stages of this fall of Lucifer. The scenes of the past and the future were presented to the mind of Christ. Notice that Jesus had a visionary experience. God gives him a, a picture in his mind, and he saw the past, and he saw the future. He beheld Lucifer as he was first cast out from the heavenly places. That's stage one. Okay. Now he says he looked forward to the scenes of his own agony when before all the worlds the character of the deceiver should be unveiled. He heard the cry, it is finished, announcing that the redemption of the lost race was forever made certain, that heaven was made eternally secure against the accusations, the deceptions, the pretensions that Satan would instigate. Notice that heaven would be eternally secure against heaven, and he's look, I mean against Satan, and he's looking forward to his own death on the cross. Step two. Is it clear so far? Okay. Now, beyond the cross of Calvary, with its agony and shame, Jesus looked forward to the great final day. That's going to be step four, the, the end of it all, right? So we've gone step one, step two, and he skips over and looks way down at the very end of step four to the great final day when the prince of the power of the air will meet his destruction in the earth so long marred by his rebellion. Jesus beheld the work of evil forever ended and the peace of God filling heaven and earth. So he looks at stage one. In the past, being cast out of heaven. Stage two, immediate future when he was going to die on the cross and by so doing reveal the character of Satan and the righteousness of God and the universe would be made eternally secure, cast out of the sympathies of heavenly beings. Okay? Then he skips way down the line looks to the great final day when Satan will be finally destroyed. Well, what goes in between? Why not just skip to that great final day? Why not just have that happen at the cross? Why wasn't the cross the great final day? Because of step three. Henceforward, so from the time of the cross to that great final end, henceforward, Christ's followers were to look upon Satan as a what? Conquered foe. Upon the cross, Jesus was to gain the victory for them, and that victory he desired them to accept as what? Their own. He gained the victory, and he says, now I want you to have that victory. That, friends, is step three. Revelation chapter 12 again. Let's go back there. Just to show you, I believe it's in Revelation chapter 12 as well. This victory over Satan 
by the church. And we'll read it all through in context. We'll start with verse 7, but I want you to see the greater context. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels and the dragon fought with, and the, uh, I'm sorry, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Step one. Verse 10 is step two. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Jesus on the cross. Step two. Now verse three. And they... Who are they? In the immediate context, it seems the brethren who've been accused, right? And they overcame him. By what agency? By the blood of the Lamb. And they, and the word, by the word of their testimony. We're going to come back to that later, by the way. It's the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to what point? To the death. They were willing to lay themselves down completely to let themselves be a vessel for the glory of God, to reveal the character of Christ in them, thus revealing the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. That's step three. By the way, John chapter 2 and verse 20, it's a good time to put this one in here because we're going to spend the, basically the bulk of our seminar after this session is going to be going back to stage three because this is where we live. Stage one is great to study, and it's already been accomplished. Stage two is great. And we're about to study into second stage four. That's in the future, but we're living in the present. This is now. This is our current situation is stage three. So this is the one that the whole seminar is about. Okay, so we're going to come back to this, but I want to put it in the context of this four-stage fall. John chapter one and verse, uh, chapter, uh, first John, I'm sorry, first John chapter two and verse 28. When Jesus comes, of course, there will be a separation between the righteous and the wicked. That's the time of the harvest. So how do we prepare for that? Just a little nutshell. I don't want to leave with, without giving you this passage here. And now, little children, what should we do? Abide in him. That when he appears, we may have what? Confidence. If you're in Jesus Christ, should you have confidence as you look forward to the second coming? Absolutely. In fact, I would say not just have confidence, that's the only confidence you can have as you look forward to Jesus' second coming. Friends, the only way out is through Jesus Christ. By beholding Him, we find our confidence. By holding Him, we find our assurance. By, by beholding Him, we have a guarantee of eternal life. Again, little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Mm. Because, by the way, there's going to be plenty of people who live to the second coming. But not everybody's going to live through the second coming, right? I want to be part of that latter group. There's going to be plenty of incidental people who just happen to be alive. It doesn't give us any... There's no great merit and happening to live at this particular time. It's really cool. I'm thrilled to be living here in this time of earth's history, you know? I, it's so great to see that we're standing at this point where the, so much of Scripture has already been fulfilled and these final pages are in their fulfillment right now and we're, we're living at this, on the cusp of eternity. It's exciting. But there's no inherent value, nothing meritorious in and of ourselves that we just happen to be living here at this time. Plenty of people who have no interest in Jesus Christ at all will be living when he returns. The question is, will they be living after he returns? Well, I don't want to just live to it. I want to live through it. And when Jesus comes, I want to have confidence so I can go from this world to the next and not just stay here because this world is not our home. Stage three culminates with the second coming of Jesus. Again, you see that in Revelation chapter 22, Revelation chapter 14, Matthew chapter 13, 
there's over and over this concept of Jesus will come again, there will be two groups of people, the righteous and the wicked, they'll be divided, the sheeps and the goats, the wheat and the tares, the left and the right, the, the saved and the lost, I mean, you can do it, and there'll be the two groups. I want to be part of the group that's saved. That's my bottom line. And the only way to have that is to be in Jesus Christ and to behold him and to hang on by faith to every word that he proceeds out of his mouth. Now, let's go to stage four. Revelation, oh, stop right there. Notice this past statement here. The millennium, because when Jesus comes, you would think, okay, the righteous and the wicked have all been determined. Even the reapers, the angels can spot the difference, right? They can put the right ones in the barn and the other ones in the burn. They can get, everything is, everyone who's going to keep living understands. The righteous, the, the, the redeemed themselves have chosen whom they will serve. They see the contrast. They've made their decision. So what's left to do? Why is it that when Christ comes again, every wicked person dies except one? I mean, come on. What is left to be done at this point? And if you really think about the millennium, because they go, okay, so he's going to be chained down for a thousand years, wake up, everybody wicked is going to be resurrected, and then God's going to kill them all over again. Whew. We need to understand this. What purpose does the millennium serve in God's plan? What part of his manifold wisdom do we see in Revelation chapter 20? Let's go there. Revelation chapter 20. What's the purpose of the millennium? I believe it's a twofold purpose. But it's rooted all the way back in the instigation of the great controversy. Right after Revelation 19 finishes up describing the... Um, the return of Jesus and the destruction of the wicked. In rather graphic apocalyptic language, we, saw, we find in chapter 20, verse 1, the natural continuation of that. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, and just to tie us exactly back to Revelation 12 and the great controversy theme, the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan. As this is the natural continuation of Revelation chapter 1. This gives more detail. It's picking up there with a baton passed on. And bound him for a thousand years. Doesn't kill him. It just whittles his level of influence even down farther until he's just caged up on this place where there's no one left to tempt. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. Now, I do like that part. and set a seal on him. So that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. And of course, the logical reason is there's no, more, no nations to deceive. It's all empty. It's wilderness. It's desolate. It's abusos. It's the abyss. But, notice this language. But after these things, he must, not he would be, but he must be released for a little while. Why? Why is, it so, why is it a necessity? Well, we see the next thing happening there. For, for reason number one, so that the righteous who were just redeemed could have an opportunity to review the books that God has of judgment. Right? When the redeemed go and judge the world, they're not judging who's going to go to heaven and who's not. That has already been determined. The event has already occurred, Right? So it's certainly not to determine who's in and out. Only Jesus Christ determines our salvation. Can we be clear about that? Okay. But he has a world full of intelligent, sentient beings. So he's right in his determination, but he needs to be seen as right by those who will serve him. Does that make sense? Okay, so this is what we see. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. All right, so this is the first resurrection, what we're describing here. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. 
but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So apparently they're going to sit on the throne with Christ, reviewing the judgment that has already been determined. They're just trying to understand it, and they're having an opportunity to review the judgment process. Okay? Now, verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And he's bound with a chain of circumstance. This is a reference to the other resurrection, right? The resurrection of the wicked. And will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for battle. Perhaps some of the saddest words in Scripture. Whose number is as the sand of the sea. Think about that. There's going to be plenty of people who live to the second coming. Verse 9. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So wait a minute. They just wake up, gather an army, charge the city, and then God kills them all over again. I mean, weren't they already dead? And then the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We could have a whole study on, you know, the state of the dead and the eternal torment or lack thereof. What forever and ever means biblically. We understand we're talking about the destruction of the wicked. But why? Well, I think we find the why in the preceding verses as it just goes forward. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. Interesting language. There's no place for them. The same thing when Satan was cast out. There's found no place for them. So again, this is before they're executed. This is what happens pre before, I believe, before this. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. So now the books are opened with the wicked there. Standing before God. And the dead were judged according to their what? To their works by the things which were written in the books. Which, by the way, of course, we're all, we're all authors of at least one book, yes? The book of record. Every one of us is writing a book right now. It's got our works, it's got our thoughts, it's, got, it's, it's who we are. It's got our character transcribed. Mrs. White, when, in, in the cutting-edge language of her day, talked about how we're all being photographed. It's interesting. On the plates of heaven, you know? And apparently, the, the books of judgment are going to be open, and there's the, the law of God and the, the revelation, the, the great controversy itself and the whole thing. And then there's the character of the individual, and we'll be matched up. Okay? Now, why would he do that? Because watch what happens then, right? The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of the life was cast in the lake of fire. Why would he wake people up just to kill them again? There has to be a good reason for this to be in Scripture. But let's think about the uniqueness of the millennium. This is the only time in the history of the universe where every sentient created being is alive at the same time. Okay? The creator and all of his creatures who live and breathe and have their being, right, are assembled before him. Now, has God known the difference between the character of Christ and the character of the lost? Of course. Ever since the very beginning, right? This isn't for him. Have the fallen beings seen the contrast? Of course. Have the redeemed seen it? Yes. They've seen it in their own life experience, right? And they've seen it reviewed for the books. But the wicked have not had an opportunity to have their questions answered yet. God wants every single created being, even those who are against him, to see the righteousness of the plan of salvation. It matters to God what his creatures think. Even those who will be lost, thus we read 
in Scripture about how every knee shall bow, not just those who agree, or at least not those who love him, because at this point, right, they're going to see the weight of evidence clearly demonstrates, DNA evidence. God was right. Satan was wrong. We wouldn't want to go even if you gave us the option. We'd rather die and just not be than be with you. And I'll put it on a record before the whole universe. Fair enough. Fair enough. But throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, no one will ever be able to say, well, I wish that they had had a chance to... No, no, no. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Speaking of this, we read in The Great Controversy, page 668. It is now evident, and by the way, these are just selected passages. I tried to make all these notes so they'd fit on one piece of paper front and back. Go home and be good Bereans. <laughs> read the book for yourself, especially in the context of this stage. Read the chapter on the millennium, okay? It is now evident to all that the wages of sin is not noble independence and eternal life, which hadn't that been the, the, the argument of Satan all along. You can be like God. You can choose right from wrong. You do. He's keeping knowledge from you, blah, 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 blah. This trading and trafficking will finally come to an end at the end of the millennium. But slavery, ruin, and death. The wicked see what they have forfeited by their life of rebellion. The far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory was despised when offered them. But now how desire, but how desirable it now appears. All this, cries the lost soul, I might have had, but I chose to put these things far from me. Notice it's their choice. Oh, strange infatuation. You know, we can't even wrap our minds around eternity. And beyond that, by the way, I don't want to get into this. And I'll put a pin in this and we'll come back to it later. I don't want to get into it. Boy, don't you know how good heaven will be? There will be so many streets of gold. Don't you want to go? You'll get so much stuff for you and for you and for you. <laughs> well, we can't fathom. Why do we talk about the streets of gold and the dolphins and the giraffes all the time, right? The thing that makes heaven heaven is Jesus. We can't wrap our minds around the goodness, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But these people don't like Jesus Christ. And in this life, they haven't developed a character that would get along with Jesus. You ever, you ever had that question? Whenever you're doing something naughty and your, your mom or your dad, could you do that thing? If Jesus were here there with you, and you don't like that question, of course I couldn't do that thing. <laughs> right? But think about it. We're going to spend eternity with Jesus. It kind of makes sense to get to know Jesus now and decide with he we want to go if he were to offer us the place. I mean, he gives you two options, eternal life or perish. And he's not going to force either one of us, those op op options on us. We choose. The Bible says, choose you this day. It's a choice. Oh, strange infatuation. I have exchanged peace, happiness, and honor for wretchedness, infamy, and despair. All see that their exclusion from heaven is just. Think about that. Even the wicked are like, yeah, you're right. And it's not out of repentance. It's not out of love. It's not out of sincerity. But they're just like, yeah, the weight of evidence. You're right. I was wrong. I'd rather die than be with you. Mm. By their lives, they have declared. So it's not just what their lips will declare, but their lives, as the record shows, declare we will not have this man to reign over us. Now, do you think they want to go in the kingdom? Sure. Because they've heard about the streets of gold and the giraffes and the dolphins. Right? I don't know why I pick on those, but I really want to ride around with a dolphin. You know, I've never... They want the kingdom. 
but they don't want the king. See what I'm saying? Do you think Satan wants to go to heaven? Sure! <laughs> he knows what it's like. He was already there. <laughs> but he doesn't like the king. He doesn't love his ways. And Mrs. White talks about how it would be supreme torture. Those are her words. Supreme torture to Satan if he were allowed back in heaven. Mm. Continue on page 670. But the time has now come when the rebellion is to be finally de defeated and the history and character of Satan disclosed. Notice, full disclosure of Satan. But I thought that happened at the cross. No, that happened for a certain group. But now everyone's alive at all the same time. Even the wicked will see every rock uncovered, every question answered. In his last great effort to dethrone Christ, destroy his people, and take possession of the city of God, the ark deceiver has been fully unmasked. Same language she used with Jesus' death on the cross. For the heavenly beings, now it happens even for the wicked. His character is fully revealed. Those who have united with him see the total failure of his cause. Christ's followers and the loyal angels behold the full extent of his machinations against the government of God. He is the object of universal abhorrence. Think about it from all the way back to Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. And he was the ordained. He had literally universal influence. And each step, his influence has been whittled down and whittled down and whittled down till finally he's the last man standing. And again, not out of love and not out of repentance, not out of genuine contrition, by the weight of sheer evidence itself, he is forced to acknowledge not compelled by force in that sense, but the evidence itself leads inescapably to one decision, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he was wrong. She continues. Satan sees that his voluntary rebellion has unfitted him for heaven. He has trained his powers to war against God. You know, he's shaped that great mind to be only one thing, and that's anti-God. The purity, peace, and harmony of heaven would be to him supreme torture. You know, if Jesus really wanted to get him and really be a vengeful God, and he would bring Satan to heaven. That's where the unending torture would be. But he doesn't do that even for Satan. His accusations against the mercy and justice of God are now silenced. Not because Jesus argued enough verbally, but he let the thing play out and demonstrate the issues at stake. His accusations against the mercy and justice of God are now silenced. The reproach which he has endeavored to cast upon Jehovah rests wholly upon himself. And now Satan bows down and confesses the justice of his sentence. All of this, of course, was prefigured in the scapegoat ceremony of Leviticus 16. After the atonement is completed by the Lamb of God, the goat, right, the Lord's goat, is placed on the scapegoat. And please, folks, he doesn't shed his blood on our behalf. Only Jesus is our Savior. Are we clear on that? But Satan still has to answer for his crimes. And all the sin, the weight of the world is put upon his shoulders, not in a salvific way, but in a justice-satisfying way. And even he acknowledges, yeah, that's right. Powerful, powerful thought. Thus we have Philippians 2, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Romans chapter 14, the same thing. I'm going to take you back to Isaiah chapter 45. Paul wasn't the first one to come up with this concept that every knee should bow. It's an Old Testament concept. Isaiah 45. And notice how the Lord originally cast this concept. It's not an aha, we're going to find out who's wrong and get them. It's an appeal to let no one, there's no reason for any of us to have to go through this. Look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth. Doesn't that remind you of the serpent lifted up on the stick in the wilderness? 
Just look and live. Jesus employs that. Look to me. And in Isaiah, he had prophesied, look to me and live. Be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. <laughs> Folks, I'm right and I'm telling you ahead of time. You're going to see it sooner than later, so see it now. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. Notice that both classes are represented there when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Again, page 678 in the Great Controversy as we close. In the day of final judgment, every soul will understand the nature of his own rejection of truth. The cross will be presented. And its real bearing will be seen by every mind that has been blinded by transgression. And notice that even then, what is the saving thing? It's the force of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Before the vision of Calvary with, mis with its mysterious victim, Sinners will stand condemned. Every lying excuse will be swept away. Human apostasy will appear in its heinous character. Men will see what their choice has been. Notice it keeps going back to this, what their choice has been. Every question of truth and error in the long-standing controversy will then have been made plain. In the judgment of the universe, God will stand clear of blame for the existence or continuance of evil. Not just as existence, but why does he let it keep going? Because of this process. It's the only way. It will be demonstrated that the divine decrees are not accessory to sin. Which apparently is one of those lies he was peddling around the courts of heaven. You know, the reason we have sin is because he had a law. If there was no law, there wouldn't be a sin, right? Transgression of the law, so let's just get rid of the law so we can do whatever we want. It's his fault for even making the law in the first place. And you can imagine the types of things... God says, no, 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 we're going to have to demonstrate that that's crazy. And it literally is. Mrs. White talks about his original sin as a species of insanity. There's no way you can excuse it. Don't try to explain it. Don't be, because as soon as you start to explain it, well, the reason he did this is because, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. It's just a choice that that individual made with no accessory on God's part. He says, I didn't do it. An enemy has done this, Right? It will be demonstrated that the divine decrees are not accessory to sin. There is no defect in God's government, no cause for disaffection. When the thoughts of all hearts shall be revealed, both the loyal and the rebellious will unite in declaring, Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thy judgments are made manifest. That's the purpose of the millennium is to let everyone understand. Because God has created a sentient universe and everyone needs the opportunity, even those who reject Christ, needs an opportunity to see all the issues and see the evidence for themselves so that when it's done, it's finally done. There will not be a second great controversy. This is the last time. And God, if he says, now that this thing is started, we're going to run it all the way to the end so it'll never start up again. Has it made sense? Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for even creating us through his, through his power in the first place. And Lord, especially thank you for the cross of Jesus that not only reveals the character of God, but it also reveals the character of Say, It shows us the wisdom of God and lets us see the glimpse of the glory of the Father. Lord, help us to abide in him. Help us in this life to choose whom we will serve. And let the victory of Jesus be ours, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, 
Bible-based and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.